Now, we also have to understand that these first five books of the Bible are in a particular, written in a particular form. In the same way that we today have autobiography, we have poetry, we have fiction, nonfiction, this was a particular type of writing called law, Torah. And here's what Torah is defined as. Torah is a unique combination of story and commandment that makes a fundamental statement about what God expects by saying as forcefully as possible what the people of God is. This is about identity. Who are we? Who were the ancient Israelites that God is speaking to in that context and has preserved through all the ages that the same questions asked of them could be asked of us? And so in the same way that this is written to both command, a unique combination of story and commandment, teaching us what God expects of us. We also have to know even one thing further because that's talking about the whole five books. Let's just focus in on Genesis 1, 1, and 2 and moving through the rest of Genesis 1. The rest of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is also written in a particular form. It has a little bit of a poetic nature, but it's also using a particular form of an ancient cosmology. When the world is a cosmology. Uh, there were many accounts of the creation of the world. You may have seen on a History Channel show somewhere sort of the, the connections between the, the creation account, the Christian and Jewish creation account story, and the others, say maybe the Egyptian or the Akkadian accounts and those stories. And there may be some conclusions drawn from that, like, well, see, there's a lot of similarities between these two. And so it seems as if the Christians may have, or the, the Christians and the Jews may have borrowed from other things around them and then sort of cobbled together their own ancient cosmos or cosmology, where the cosmos came from, where the universe came from, what are we doing here? I have a different approach. It's not unique to me. Uh, but in the very same way that we communicate in forms that we already understand, what is happening here is for these particular people, for the Israelites, they, there is a form being written in the same way that today we listen to podcasts. There is a, this is essentially a podcast form, an understandable form that they would be using to say, I'm going to take that form and infuse it with new meaning. Because what we know of every other creation account of that time, here is generally the picture that it draws. You've got the gods over here, and you've got the created thing over here. And those things somehow began and came into existence around the same time, or the created thing was already there, the chaos, the waters, some of those similar images are used in other creation accounts. And then here come the gods, and then they have to kind of like figure out what to do with this whole thing. And they kind of war with each other, and they make something out of this, and then the world spins out in some ancient conflict, and something happens. No other ancient cosmology says this. In the beginning... God. Every other ancient cosmology says something is happening that there is a sort of out of controlness to the nature of the world. And we can understand that because the majority of our world and our internal lives feels out of control. So that kind of squares with our reality. 
But there is this ancient protest. Genesis 1 and 2 are sort of nailing this to our door to say, no, there is something new. There is something different. There is something that you do not expect because in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, Jeremy, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is above all things and all things flow from him. Now here's why this would be written to the ancient Israelites and to us. Deuteronomy 31, this is where we get that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 31 says, when Moses had finished writing the words of the law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites to put it in the Ark of the Covenant. He said, take this book of the law, put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be there for what purpose? For a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Interesting. This is not only sort of for those people out there to say, see, there is a God. See, he does exist. See, he did make everything. Take that, scientists. No, we actually love science. In fact, Christians, uh, Christianity is a basis by which we can understand science. Because it is the, it is, if there is a God that controls all things that is always the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we can understand and believe that this world is also operating in a consistent fashion that we can observe. More to that, more of that to come in future weeks. But what we're, what Moses is saying is he is getting after a particular people that are going to hear in the beginning God and then are going to continue to live in the beginning Jeremy. Yeah, 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 I hear that. I know that. I've read this passage a billion times. Every time I start a new Bible reading plan, I read like the first half of Genesis 1 and then I give up. I've read, I've read the words. I know it. Yeah. But has it gone from here to here? And in what ways has it gone from here to here? And in what ways has it not? Because what Moses is saying is I keep telling these people time after time after time. I'm up on the mountain talking to God, and they're down in the valley pretending like he doesn't exist. And that's our story. And so the beginning of this story, the beginning of the cosmos, also begin, this begs us the question, how might this blow the doors off of what we think? Not just up here. How might this blow the doors off of the way that we live in our day-to-day -day existence? Do we really believe that there is a God who is over us? Do we believe that there is a God? God? <laughs> Isn't that what Jesus' calling is about? Even for seasoned Christians... Let's try to get this back on the track. Even for seasoned Christians, we default every morning uh, believing that we are the masters of our own destiny. It is, the, it is the natural overflow of the human heart to believe that we are not creature but creator. But to then flip that and say, no, we are creaturely. We have a very specific window of our lives and then we are gone like a vapor. 
And we experience all this chaos in our lives in the same way that there is all this chaos without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, over the face of these waters. We feel all that same chaos. We see all that same chaos. And yet we continue to move towards it with the belief that if I can just try a little harder, if I can just do this little life hack, if I can just schedule my week a little bit better, maybe if I can just stop yelling at my kids, then everything will be okay. Then my life can get on track. Then, then, then. Because we are continuing to put ourselves at the center of our existence. To go from this to this. First word, beginning. Second word, hovering. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That word hovering is used in other places and in the ancient Hebrew language to describe a mother bird hovering over her babies. Uh, My family somehow a number of years ago found this thing called the Eagle Cam. And uh, it's located in Berry College, which is in Northwest Georgia. Uh, I almost went there. And uh, they've got this 27,000 acre beautiful campus outside the the city, northwest of Atlanta. And there's this camera set up, and these eagles have made this nest. And it continues year after year after year. I think it was put up there in like 2015 or 2016 when they first found this nest. And every year, this would always be, we would visit my family around Christmas, and we would always pull up the eagle cam. Because typically, there would be this this pair of eagles. A lot of times, it would be the same pair year after year after year that would fly back to that location that would lay some eggs somewhere around November, December. Those eggs would then hatch sometime around January. And then those little babies would be tended and cared for and nurtured until sometime around May when they would fly away. And to watch those eagles prepare the nest, to, to gather the twigs and repair the breaches since that time last year, to get the, the soft material to lay in the bottom so that the eggs would have a soft place to lay and not crack, to watch them tend over those babies as they are new and young, to feed them, to protect them from enemies, to protect them from predators. That's the picture that we get here. That yes, in the beginning, God, that yes, awe and power and majesty and glory and sovereignty, all those things are true. Yes and amen of him. And what did he do with all that power? He hovers. And at least two, we could talk about more, but at least two characteristics of God begin to take shape here. Wisdom and love. Proverbs 8, speaking of these two verses, says, The Lord possessed me, speaking me is, stop it. Me is wisdom. Uh, so the Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work. His first, the first of his acts are old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. It's personifying wisdom. And saying a key characteristic of how God made all things is he was wise about it. 
He not only has all knowledge because he's over all things, but he is able to use all knowledge. What is wisdom? It's knowledge applied. He is able to use all of that wisdom and apply it in just the perfect way. God has written a perfect story before the whole thing began. In perfect wisdom, he wrote that story. He knew the beginning, he knew the end, he knew the middle. He is not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised by the direction of this world. He's not surprised by the direction of this country. He's not surprised by the direction of your own heart. He knew the end. He knew the beginning. Wisdom crafted this world. And here's what we do. When we go from this, in the beginning God, to in the beginning me, What's one of the first things we lose? We lose wisdom. Because to remove God from the picture, which this is the Enlightenment project. This is the late 1800s, early 1900s scientific revolution that we're going to take God out of the equation. uh, And instead, we're going to rely on scientific investigation and human reason. And using only science and reason, we are going to create a new world order. We are going to create a united humanity. And together, there will be a new flourishing unlike under any religion and unlike any other worldview in the history of all the world. Well, we're about 120-some-odd years into that project. Has it achieved what it was hoping to achieve? Or are we further away from the mark that we were aiming at? Because to remove God from the story is to remove wisdom from the story. To remove God from your life is to remove wisdom from your life. And then here's what happens instead. Then we begin to have to cobble together our own. We have to cobble together our own identity, cobble together our own meaning, cobble together our own narrative. And then friendship and marriage and parenting and work and good and evil, it's all up to you. That is a massive amount of pressure to be on the shoulders of any individual. Do you feel the weight pressing down on just the things that it takes to get from one side of the week to the other? The things that all of us are constantly juggling, let alone (laughs) trying to also juggle our identity and finding our meaning and our purpose. I'm just trying to get dinner ready. Because to take wisdom away, I'm sorry, to take God out of the picture is to take wisdom out of the picture. And then self-righteousness begins to be the way that everything that we think we're getting really right, we feel real puffed up about that. And then every place that we are failing, we just hide those things. Every place that we're not meeting the mark, even the mark that we set for ourselves, guilt and anxiety begin to rest on our shoulders because we are our own wisdom. And then we search the socials, we search the experts, we search the celebs and ask, how do I live? How do I live well? How do I do this? This life is hard. Help me. And the trouble is, in the same way that the Israelites, this is after a lot of their story when Moses says, and the reason I'm writing all this down is because you guys are rebellious. And in the same way, we can even know all of those things are true. We can know God created the world and yet continue to live unwisely, continue to live like that isn't true. That doesn't solve the problem. Just like getting God back in our worldview 
doesn't change a thing necessarily unless we also have love. Because not only does he care over and dote over his creation with his wisdom, he also cares and dotes over us in his love. Ephesians 1 paints this amazing picture of what God was doing in in Genesis 1 and 2. What was going on in his mind? What was going on in the plans he was making? And here's what uh, Ephesians 1 verse 5 says. In love, he predestined us for adoption. (laughs) Of all the things he could have been doing and that he was doing in cobbling together this great universe, in love, he created these things. And not only generally, in love, he created you. And even more pointedly, in love, he knew his people before the foundation of the world. He wisely crafted this story of humanity out of love. He knew that we were going to be created out of this overflowing love of Father, Son, and Spirit, that we were going to walk away from that love, that we were going to have to be pursued back by that love to then be reformed by it. And so to know that our root is there begins to make some sense out of who we are and where we are in our story. Because Jesus is like the playwright entering the play. He is the one who, Colossians says, that by and through and for whom he made everything. And yet this Jesus comes into our story, not by accident, not by some sort of scrambling by God to figure things out after the human screwed it up. But before the foundation of the world, this plan was set. He knew that we were going to go all sorts of astray. And he knew that Jesus was going to come pursue his people. And so the life and the death of Jesus was perfectly planned. And there's this picture of, in a very similar way, as Jesus is lying in the grave, after he has been uh, broken into the depths of this darkness, as he is lying there, taking our punishment and our penalty, the Holy Spirit hovers over him and brings him back to life. And Paul, in other places, calls that union. That because he's resurrected, so now we can be resurrected. And so places like Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is this kind of psalm of repentance of, oh God, I've really messed up. I'm so sorry. Will you please more and more change me and make me new? It uses the word in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. That's the same word for in the beginning God created. And so when we go back to the Lord in repentance, when we open our hands to him and say, I know I've been living unwisely. I know I've been living like you don't exist. Here are all the ways that that's working out in my life. I'm sorry. As we open up our hands to him, we're asking, will you recreate in me a new heart? Taking our chaos, hovering over it, and cultivating new life out of it. That's what he loves to do. That's where, that's where we exist in this story. So why do we love redemption stories? Like we love Anna sacrificing herself for Elsa in Frozen. We love William Wallace yelling, freedom! As he sacrifices himself for Scotland. We love stories like the Bad News Bears and the Mighty Ducks, the underdogs. The Georgia Bulldogs, just kidding. 
We, we love these redemption stories, these underdog stories, because they're ours. As you know, if you've ever read anything or watched any movie or any TV show, a movie or a TV show or a book that just does this the whole time is a really boring story. Every good story has a conflict, a rising action, a climax, a falling action, a conclusion. That's what makes a good story. I wonder how, where that came from. I wonder what that is echoing. Oh, that's our story. God wrote this amazing story through all of time that we live in the middle of, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And now every story that we create kind of moves in that same pattern. So here's a couple of applications for today. I'd say two things. One, take the pressure off. Like if, if in the beginning God, that means even now, God. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. You don't have to have this death grip over your life, hoping that you can get it all just right so that God may bless you or so that your life might go the way that you hope it will. There's a freedom and a joy and an open-handedness that we can live our lives with when we begin more and more, when our hearts are more and more conformed to believe that he is both wisely and lovingly running my life. It gives me full agency to live into that. It gives me all kinds of freedom and joy to continue to pursue all that he's made me for, but it gives me a huge amount of freedom in the way that I do that. And secondly, pause. A, a primary goal of this entire spring is worship. So we're going to spend a lot of time singing. We're going to spend a lot of time hearing stories. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time not just hearing about this God, but more and more trying to put ourselves in the posture of experiencing who he actually is. So we're going to do that now. Let me pray. Father, I pray uh, that as we continue to worship you, I pray that you would do what we can. We cannot awaken ourselves to believe this. In the beginning, God is so far over and above what we can naturally force ourselves to believe. It is something that by your spirit's power, you have to more and more enable us and enliven us to not just believe with our head, but to actually clinch onto in our hearts and say, that's my story. So I pray uh, that you would give us the kind of playfulness uh, that you have created us to be not sovereign. We can enjoy our smallness. We can go get ice cream on the way home and smile because you are in charge and we are not. And we can more and more live in the freedom of the grace, the wisdom, and the love of our Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.